And um, now we're going to get into uh, the word, get into John. Just a few more weeks left in the Gospel of John. And we uh, come to really um, a somber, sober section um, here in the trial of Jesus just before the crucifixion. In fact, today we'll, we'll close with just the verse that they led him out to be crucified there in John 19. So John 18 is where we are. Looking at verse 28. And if you'll stand with me, we'll read our section through chapter 19, verse 26. Let me read it for you. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that they might, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying but what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he'd said this, they went out again to the Jews. He went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And then they all cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. 
Whoever made himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of Passover in about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. And then they took Jesus and led him away. And Lord, as we come to your word, uh, just a, a detailed account of you being on trial. As we often sing, man of sorrows, uh, Lord, you here are betrayed, you are beaten, you're mocked, you're scorned. And as we also have sung, how can I stand here with you and not be moved by you? How can we read this account of you before Pilate and being betrayed by your own people and murdered by your own people? And how can we not be moved um, in our inner person to want to repent of our sin and follow you? And I pray today that your word would have that effect on us, that your word would have this effect that we would just have such a diligent heart to follow after this one crowned with thorns, this one robed in scarlet, this one who willingly laid his life down for the sins of the world. Change us through this text today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Interesting to read the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then to read John's account of the same thing, each gospel reporting of Jesus's trial before Pilate and Pilate's dilemma. But it's been said that John reports far more detail of this trial before Pilate than do all three of the synoptics combined. I was thinking of uh, the Apostles' Creed, and it's been recently made into some songs that we sing, creeds that really help us remember who we are and what we believe from the Word of God. Uh, the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And then the Apostles' Creed says, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He was suffering under Pontius Pilate. It was in a Gospel Coalition blog about this that says, you're reading the um, Apostles' Creed, and then in comes Pilate, like a dirty dog walking into a nice room. As Karl Barth once put it, and what does Pilate do? He causes Jesus Christ to suffer. And as we've been reading the Gospel of John, so many wonderful and sweet and peaceful scenes with Jesus displaying himself to be the Son of God, moving in power, moving in love, moving in compassion, being who he is, the only Son of God. And then we're in these dark chapters of the betrayal, the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, his trial before Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, and then being led in the early hours of the morning here to Pontius Pilate, where he would suffer. 
where he would suffer. And in the sovereignty of God and in God's plan of redemption, as Isaiah tells us, it actually pleased the Lord, the Father, to bruise him. This was all part of God's redemptive plan of history that Jesus would lay his life down and take the place of sinners. God's justice is being carried carried out against sin. God's justice is being carried out against sinners in Jesus' suffering under Pontius Pilate. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a verse near and dear to my heart. It says this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, or to be made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what theologians have called the great exchange The just for the unjust. Think about it again. The father made Jesus who never knew any sin. Book of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted and suffered and tried in all points that we are. Okay, so think about all the ways that you've been tempted. Think of all the ways that you've suffered. Think of all the ways that you've been tried. And Jesus, in equal manner, if not more so, has been tested and tempted in those ways. And yet, Hebrews tells us, he arose out of those without sinning. And because of that, he's able to be a faithful high priest for us. He's able to ever live to pray for us and make intercession for us. He's able to lead us in the victory because he knows how to say no to sin. And he was without sin. And the father made him who never knew sin to actually become sin for us, to be made sin for us. And what is the purpose of that? There's a so that in that text, 2 Corinthians 5.21, so that we might become what Jesus was, so that we might become the righteousness of of God in Christ Jesus. Now, what's our role in that? Well, then there I was. No, your role is you're the bad guy. (laughs) Your role is you're the one that screwed this whole thing up. He's the savior. He's the champion. He's the hero. He's the one who's initiated salvation. And the son, willingly obedient to the father's will, laid his life down as a ransom for many. And so... It pleased the father to bruise the son so that he could win all of us back through this great rescue plan. And so as we read this text, and as we study it today, you kind of go from different scenes, from scene to scene, you know, Pilate and the Jews, Pilate and Jesus, Pilate back with the Jews, Pilate back with Jesus, Pilate and Jesus over with the Jews, and then Mixed in there through Luke's gospel is Jesus is sent away and goes spend some time with King Herod before he comes back to Pilate. In fact, I've got a map real quick. I was going to show this a little bit later, but you know, since we're on the topic, um, here's one if you want a silly little little pencil sketch. Um, this is one of uh, Jerusalem and the old city. Um, you see on the right the Kidron Valley. I've spoke of the Kidron Valley. 
because it was there that Jesus stepped across the brook Kidron and went to the Mount of Olives. You see on the right side there where there's the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where Jesus was uh, betrayed and arrested. And then essentially on this map, uh, what we have is the path that Jesus took um, step by step from the upper room. See over there on the left, bottom left, it says upper room and it points to a tiny little square. Upper room, over to the Mount of Olives, back over to Annas' house or see Caiaphas' residence on the left and then back up to Pontius. So here we have essentially just a map. Do we have a satellite image that I screenshotted off of Google and then penciled it out for all of you guys. So amazing thing is you can go to all of these places today and, um, and essentially we have step by step all that Jesus walked that night before eventually being crucified north there uh, at Calvary, Mount Calvary or Golgotha, the place of the skull. And I had written it out, I think it's in my other's notes, but it was something about four miles that Jesus would walk in an evening, um, in a night and in the middle of the night um, during trials and beatings and scourgings and eventually packing a 90 pound patibulum crossbar of a cross. Um, and so Jesus suffering anguish, the man of sorrows, uh, goes from Caiaphas's house, um, Hard to see in all of that city population density there uh, from Caiaphas's house now to the Praetorium. So let's get into it. Verse 28, chapter 18. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. So they're going from Jewish high priest, mock trial, totally illegal, against the law of the Lord and against the Jewish law themselves. I mean, they are in desperation to get rid of this guy, Jesus. And so they take him over to now the Gentiles, now to the Romans, now to the people that they hate and despise. But hey, the enemy of my enemy is my best friend. And we're going to see this a couple times tonight. Um, and uh, so over to the Praetorium. The Praetorium is known as the palace guard or the governor's headquarters. But there's a place in the Praetorium that's been known as the Roman soldier's locker room. And today you can go to the Antonia Fortress, to the Praetorium. Uh, when we're on tour, there we go. And there's actually the original stones of this Roman locker room where there are games carved into the ground that the soldiers would play with each other with their dice while they're on break. And they actually had created what's called the Game of the Kings where they would um, beat and torture people. Uh, and it's believed that that game board is there that they played with as they tortured Jesus there as they mocked him dressed up as a king. We'll get into that in just a little bit. But this Roman soldier's locker room, which is all part of the palace guard or the governor's headquarters. And, and here in uh, early morning, it said, so Jesus was arrested at night after the last supper while they were praying in the garden. He was betrayed and arrested while it was necessary to have torches. So it was nighttime when he was arrested, led back across the Kidron Valley, led to Caiaphas house. Um, and it's believed that now at this point, it's about 6 a.m. or between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. So it's early morning. They're, you know, waking Pilate up. They're just trying to do everything they can before Passover to eliminate Jesus and to get this done. 
Now, it's not surprising, actually, that they had these farmer's hours, you know, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., um, because that's, what, that's how the Roman soldiers operated. The Romans actually tried to get all their work done before 10 a.m. or 11 a.m., and then they were done with work for the day. Um, one bit of what has been called John or Johannian irony is that at the end of verse 28, it says that the Jews wouldn't go into this Roman uh, headquarters, the Praetorium. And why is that? Like, oh, we're take Jesus in there before Pilate, but we're not going in. Why did they not want to go in? They did not want to be defiled so that they could eat the Passover. Now, why would this be Johannian irony? Because they are the ones that are actually in a plot to kill the Passover lamb, Jesus. And they want to, they operate in extreme hypocrisy right here. Um, hypocrisy, that's a big word in our home right now. Tatum, our five-year-old, is learning that word. She's learning it from her sister, uh, Lainey, who's often telling her she's a hypocrite. We had this fun moment this week where, um, you know, Lainey's telling Tatum not to play on her device. And because it's hypocrisy, while Lainey's over on the couch playing on her device, and Tatum says, I was just told I was a hypocrite, you know? And I was like, look at your sister over there. See how she's on her device? It's actually hypocrisy. So hypocrisy, big word in our home right now. You want to know why it's an even bigger word in our home? Okay, so I'm studying this. This is where it gets real. I'm studying this and I'm pondering the Jewish leaders who should know more than anybody else in the world that this is Jesus, their Messiah, the Savior of the world, who they've been waiting thousands of years for. Here he is in front of them. They've mocked child through the middle of the night. They're trying to murder him. They've been trying to murder him for a long season now. And now before Passover... They're leading him to a Gentile, to a Roman, to do their dirty work for them. They're going to kill the Passover lamb. In just a little bit, they're going to say, crucify him and let any innocent blood that's on him be on us and our children. And yet they're not going to go into Pilate's house. That's sicko. Because we don't want to defile ourselves so that we can go and do this religious observance. Meanwhile, your pastor is at home yesterday Decided to wear my awesome shirt that says, you must be born again. Praying with the kids, praying over the women's retreat, working on my floor, studying, listening to sermons, just, you know, little bits of struggle with, you know, four kids and stuff, you know, he's like, oh, okay, you're being a little, and uh, our FedEx driver pulls up, drops off packages for the church, and I went over and I greeted him and we're dropping off packages and and he appreciated help unloading them and stuff. And, and he goes, why are you in such a good mood? And I go, because I've got Jesus in my heart. And he's forgiven my sins and he's given me a new life. And he goes, yeah. He was like so stoked. He's like, you. And I'm like, no, you. And I'm like, both of us. You know, it was just awesome. And I was like, yeah. And just crazy thing, because I was like, cutting this piece of wood in the FedEx truck pulled up and I was like, like in the middle of the, I help you pack these boxes, you know? And he's like, why are you, I'm not even in a good mood, but it's because of Jesus, you know? 
And then it dawned on me after he left, it's like, and I'm wearing my, you must be born again shirt. So maybe that was, you know, and then I go into the house and tell the kids like the FedEx driver and you must, you know, Jesus. And yeah, it's cool. And we're sitting down and I'm reading the news and I'm kind of getting frustrated by the things I'm reading on the news and the kids start fighting. And they're bickering and they're calling me in under their bickering. Just trying to read this controversial comments in this section until finally I blow up off the rails. What is your guys's problem? Can't you see what I'm doing? And you and you and you and all of you. And, you know, I go and I put my food dishes away and I'm just like, and I glance down at my shirt. (laughs) Why'd you get me this shirt anyways? (laughs) And the Lord was just like, remember how you were just really hard on the Jews and their hypocrisy? And I mean, there they are. You go eat your Passover meal. I hope you choke on it. Look what you're doing to the lamb of God. Meanwhile, you must know you must be born again, you know. And here's the thing, you guys. Maybe you're totally different. But the same kernel of sin that was in these guys this night killing Jesus is in this guy right here in Prineville. And I'm so thankful for that shirt because it reminded me, why am I in such a good mood? It's because of Jesus What about when I'm in a bad mood? Come back to Jesus. And I just had to go to my children and just completely repent and just ask. And they are so good. (laughs) Like, they're so good to forgive. But this hypocrisy stuff, you guys, it's, we're whitewashed tombs, Jesus said. Oh, we look good on the outside, but inside you can be dead men's bones. Or you can be like a dish that's clean on the outside. But on the inside, you forgot to get the real junk out. And so here we have just this Johannian irony. And here in Prineville, there's a Roranian irony. I don't know, but (sighs) thanks for his grace. Amen. You're like, not amen. You're a jerk. I know. (laughs) Verse 29. So by the way, because they're not going inside, uh, Pilate is going to have to be in the praetorium, dealing with Jesus, and then out communicating with the Jews, and then back in again. And so he's going to be going back and forth um, in this, you know, charade. So he went out to them, and he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, Pontius Pilate, Matthew tells us he was the governor, right? Uh, In a day of governors, this is probably a season we probably cared about governors more than ever. I know it has been for me. I'm really young, but you know, um, you know, it's all about governors these days, voting in governors, recalling governors, you know, governors and what are their roles and to what extent can they have authority? And it's a great topic these days. Don't get me into it, you know? Um, pray for your governors, pray for your leaders, right? Virginia just had big governor elections this week. You guys all know, uh, he, this is Pilate and he's the governor 
of Judea. He's a Roman prefect. He's in charge of the area. Normally, he'd live in Caesarea on the seashore. A beautiful area. You can go there to this day. You see these mighty palaces. You see a video recap of what Caesarea looked like. But during Passover, he would go into Jerusalem inland about, I don't know, 40, 50 miles. And he would um, be there and just to squelch any political uproar and riots during Passover. It was bound to happen. And so he needed to, needed to be there for that. And uh, Pilate, uh, probably 10 years older than Jesus, interesting case. I just got on YouTube yesterday and was watching a little timeline documentary on Pilate. Um, you know, probably 10 years older than Jesus. Uh, he was from Southern Rome uh, and was a, a group of people that were the last to be able to hold out against the Romans. And they were ferocious fighters. Eventually they were conquered by the Romans. There may have been a bit of a, a chip on Pilate's shoulder because um, because they were the last to hold out against the Romans, they were also kind of considered the dogs of the dogs, you know, the dogs of the Romans. And so they were a lot of the grunt work. It was really hard for them to advance in the political spectrum. And, uh, and Pilate worked as a soldier, grew up um, among this Southern Italy regiment, and was very well known for his fight against the Germanian. Or is that how you said the German? I'm trying to talk all like Roman latin germanica encyclopedia germanica that's it what would you say yeah germanic thank you okay i was right um you know but a, a great soldier a great warrior and interesting when you look at jesus being a contemporary of Pilate, about the same time that Pilate is out just slaying people and just bloodshed being the life of Pilate. You've got Jesus being raised up in Galilee and eventually moving on to just be doing all of these miracles and saving people and healing people and casting out demons until uh, just a few years uh, within that time, Pilate is brought to be the governor over Judea. And when you read about it, it wasn't much of a um, promotion it was actually a place that the Romans did not want to be. Just constant riots, constant uproars, constant people that hated them and they disliked um, the Jews just as much. And so Pontius Pilate, and he's not in a great place. He's not loving where he's at. He's not loving the task that he's been given and the role that he's been given. And as this governor, you know, it's like, here we go again, you know, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., here the Jews are, they're bringing me this guy, and he says in verse 29, what accusations do you bring against this man? And in verse 30, they said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. I'm trying to read this right with the right vocal inflection, okay? Because it almost has that hint of rebellious teenager to it, Right? Or that just snootiness and maybe a little rebellion to it. Like, what do you think we're doing here? If he hadn't have done something, we wouldn't have brought him here. And Pilate's like, all I asked is what did he do? You know? And so there's this, hmm. Okay. And uh, it was a straightforward question on Pilate's account. But the Jews' answer was just as vague. Uh, New Living Translation puts it this way. We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal. Uh, he, they snapped or responded. Okay, so they're snapping at Pontius Pilate. 
already. Now, Luke tells us in 23, chapter 23, that they began to accuse Jesus. And they said, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. To which Pilate would say, that's awful nice of you to bring him here to me. The whole reason you're coming here is because of his crimes against Rome? Man, you Jews are sure considerate of us, you know? Like, he sees right through it, okay? But they were more the fierce, as you jump down in verse 5, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. So when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean, and as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who happened to also be in Jerusalem at the time. So Pilate's kind of trying to get out of this, okay? So it's early morning. This isn't my deal. You guys got an attitude. Turns out it's all about your guys' stuff anyways. Go talk to your king about it. So they go to Herod. Now, look in verse uh, 8 of Luke 23. Got it on the screen for you. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he had desired for a long time to see him because he'd heard many things about him. And he hoped to see some miracle done by him. And so you can kind of hear Herod saying, oh, goody. You know, I've always wanted to see something. This, this wasn't the first time that Herod had had an encounter in some way with Jesus. Remember uh, at the time of John the Baptist, um, John, he, Herod had put John the Baptist to death and had thought that Jesus might have been the reincarnation of John the Baptist. So he had heard of Jesus. Look at verse 9. Herod questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him, okay? Just vehemently on fire, ferociously. They're accusing Jesus in front of Herod. And then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt. And they mocked him. And then this is one place where either the robe was first given and then carried to the Romans. It could be the same robe. Or maybe there were two different robes eventually. But here, Herod had the same great idea to array Jesus in a gorgeous robe. And then what did he do with him? He sent him back to Pilate. So, you know, that map that I drew, you see over here. And he's over there. Now he's over here. Um, and interesting thing. Remember how I said, the enemy of my enemy is my best friend. Look in verse 12. That very day... Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with one another. So interesting friendship that's formed through this night of betrayal and mock trials. So now Herod had had a hard heart and a hardened conscience towards Jesus. And when he had seen Jesus, all he wanted was Jesus to dance like that performing monkey that Herod wanted him to be. When Jesus wasn't playing with Herod, wasn't playing that game, Herod mocked him, uh, scorned him, sent him back. Pilate's in an interesting state. This is Pilate's first encounter with Jesus. And Pilate seems to be having a bit of a dilemma here. You know, he, he has a desire for um, promotion. He has a desire for things to go smooth between Rome and the Jews. And he fears the Jews more than he really cares about what's doing right. But he's in this predicament, and you're going to see it evolve as the story goes on, where 
He'd like to just acquit Jesus and let him go, but he doesn't and he won't. But his conscience hasn't been seared with a hot iron yet like Herod's has. He's still in this bit of conviction, moral quandary. What is Pilate to do? And um, Luke's gospel, uh, we'll, we'll skip over that. Let's go back to our John 18.31. So that's about, you know, I'm trying to create a timeline where it's a bit vague between the different gospels. So we're about where Jesus sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Jesus, okay? And then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. And there the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put him to death. And there's kind of an aha moment. The real reason why the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate wasn't because they cared if he was, you know, an offense to Rome, of course. It was because they wanted to kill him. They weren't allowed to do corporal punishment. And, uh, and yet Pilate and the Romans were. So we went, want this guy dead and you're just the guy uh, to do it. Now, we know that in the big scheme of things, with God being sovereign, look at verse 32. It was really so that the sayings of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. And so what we see is God's great sovereign act happening, that he is in control of everything, even the hard things in life, and that God is fulfilling the prophecies that were spoken by Jesus' very own words in how he would die. Um, well, let's look at just a few of those. Look at Matthew 20, verse 17. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside on the road and he said to them, Behold, we're going to go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, that's me, that's Jesus. He's saying, sometimes I talk in the third person, but it's just so that you get the Bible prophecy that's going on. Okay. Um, he says, the son of man is going to be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and they'll deliver him to the Gentiles. So this is all big prophecy stuff that would be hard to fulfill on your own. The Jews will deliver Jesus to the Gentiles. That's a non-Jew. If you're wondering what a Gentile is. They will mock him. Now, Matthew is so specific on the prophecy here. They're going to mock him already. That's been done. They're going to scourge him with a whip. That's about to be done. And they will crucify him. And then he'll always put this little hope in there. And on the third day, he will rise again. Okay, Jesus' own lips said it. Mark 10, 33 says, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, to the scribes. They'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Luke's gospel adds a little bit. He will be delivered to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. Okay? And it's in prophecy fulfillment of Psalm 22, it's called the Psalm of the Cross, about a thousand years before crucifixion was even invented. It says, dogs have surrounded me. That's what they would call Gentiles. So somehow Messianic, the Messiah will be surrounded by Gentiles. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. So all that's going on in John chapter 18 with the Jews coming in the middle of the night and giving them over to 
the Roman authorities into Pilate, all of that, that's not happenstance. That's not just, well, they're the only ones that can kill him. There's undergirding things happening that have been prophesied for thousands of years that this is how Messiah would die. Okay? He would have his hands and his feet pierced. And uh, in the process, in verse 17, his, he would be able to count all of his bones and they would stare at me and, and they would divide my garments among them, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, and for my clothing they would cast lots, prophecy, a couple thousands of years before Jesus, that in the midst of the trial and the execution, a very Roman thing to do would be this gambling for perhaps even Herod's very gorgeous robe that we just read about. Okay. D.A. Carson said, whatever the mix of religious and political motivation, John the evangelist detects the hand of God himself. The political realities guaranteed that when sentence was finally passed, Jesus would be executed by crucifixion, not by the Jewish method of stoning. Now the Jews knew from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And what would they have loved? Nothing better for Jesus than for him to have been a curse word in Jerusalem. That no one would follow him. No one would threaten their Jewish Sanhedrin's rule anymore because that Jesus, he was just cursed. They nailed him to a tree. He's a curse. But it was all part of what Jesus prophesied in John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33. And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying what death he would die. So when Jesus speaks of being lifted up from the earth, he's speaking of being lifted up on that crucifixion implement, the Roman cross. So all that to say, verse 32 in our text says, he was brought before Pilate so that the sayings that Jesus said about how he would die would be fulfilled. Guys, prophecy is such an evidence for the reality and the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of who God is and, who, and what the scriptures say. We can trust in him and prophecy is something that just bolsters our faith. Now we have Pilate going in now to spend a little time with Jesus. So I guess if you're in the theater world, it would be scene two. Maybe we're still in act one, scene two. I don't know. Does it look like this guy ever had? I was in The Little Mermaid in third grade. Wanted to be the prince, but I was the butler. And I got to pretend to throw up, so that was good. Um, verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again. He called Jesus and he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Something that's just helpful as you study the Bible is look what a couple translations say to maybe help clarify what's being asked and what's being responded. Uh, ESV says, do you say this of your own accord, Pilate? Or did others say it to you about me? The New American Standard Bible, Jesus said, are you saying this on your own initiative? Like, is this coming from you, Pilate? Am I the king of the Jews? Or did others tell you about me? Has there been a tale bearer around, a little bit of gossip going on, that you're hearing things from the outside? 
Or do you got like a genuine question about who I am? Or NIV, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Now, Jesus cannot possibly answer with a simple yes or no. Yes, I'm the king of the Jews. Or no, I'm not the king of the Jews. I mean, it's just not that simple, right? Unless he knows what is meant by the question. So he asked Pilate if the question that the governor proposes spontaneously spontaneously springs from his own heart, or if it's from some hearsay, or is he genuinely curious? If he's genuinely curious, maybe Jesus can lead him to a deeper understanding about the kingdom of God in this moment. If it's not, then there's a moment of interrogation happening here that Jesus would respond to differently. And so, uh, you know, just simple in asking counter question here, but Pilate answers in verse 35, am I a Jew? Like, would I even know what's going on here with this? Your own nation did this, your own nation, your own chief priests have delivered to me. So what have you done anyway? The JBP translation puts it. What have you done anyway? Like, why are they so hot and bothered about you? Jesus answered, my kingdom's not of this world. Let's talk about this kingdom issue here. If my kingdom were of this world, I'd have my servants rise up. I'd have them fight so that the Jews wouldn't have their way with me. Verse 36, my kingdom's not from here. In a little while, Jesus will say, I could call on 12 legions of angels to come deliver me. And this whole thing would be over in a moment. Um, But that's not what I'm about here. I'm not about establishing my own kingdom at this moment or yet. Positively, the NIV puts it where Jesus would say, my kingdom is of a different place. So Jesus knows how to answer Pilate's first question. In verse 33, he acknowledges that he's a king, but he defines his kingdom in a way where Pilate is not going to feel that he's a threat to the Roman Empire. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, Paul tells Timothy, it's at the end of the verse, that Jesus witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. How Jesus is handling this interrogation, it was good. did a great job. It was a good confession. But the kingdom that he confesses, it's not only of this world. One day it will be, we'll have God's kingdom come on this earth. There's a whole mystery to the kingdom of God that it's already happening even right now in this room. The kingdom of God is at work and yet it's not yet happened yet. Already not yet. Now we see him as through a mirror dimly, but then we will see him in his kingdom and we will know him as we are known. Daniel chapter two tells us about that kingdom. In the days of These kings, the God of heaven, will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all the other kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So if you're not familiar with the Daniel prophecy, uh, it's just an incredible prophecy there in chapter 2. And essentially, there's a statue, and it's made up of all these different elements, and each element represents a different nation and kingdom that has uh, been over Israel in Israel's history. And, uh, and then all of a sudden this rock is cut out of a mountain and it's this giant boulder 
that was not cut with hands. It was cut from God and it rolls down the mountain and it crushes that, um, that statue, that image, and it just pulverizes it to powder. And then that boulder becomes a giant mountain that covers the whole earth. And it's a prophecy of Jesus. When I was in middle school, I used to sing a song. Jesus is the rock and he rolls my blues away. Bop, shoe, bop, shoe, bop, wee. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I didn't sing it. I played it on the saxophone, just in case you're wondering. Okay. But uh, it was a good song. Um, and so Jesus' kingdom, it's going to come and it's going to cover the whole world. And in the statue, I think the Romans are the legs of iron or the, I'm trying to remember exactly. It's been a little while. So even the legs of iron are pulverized, you know, and Jesus' kingdom will go over Pontius Pilate's kingdom and Caesar's kingdom, but not yet. In Daniel chapter seven, Jesus is given dominion and uh, it's prophecy of Jesus given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom. The one which shall not be destroyed in John six fifteen, When Jesus perceived that they were coming and take him by force to make him a king, he departed on a mountain to be by himself alone. So the interesting thing about Jesus's first coming is that when he even hears that they're coming to make him a king, he runs away from it because in his first coming, he didn't come to set up his kingdom in that way. He came to die and to offer his life up as a ransom for many. Hopping back to John 18. I know we're hopping a lot, a little hopscotch here this morning for you guys. Pilate says to Jesus, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I'm a king. It was Carson that said, Pilate has understood little. He knows that Jesus has spoken of his kingdom and therefore that Jesus's pretensions as a king must be probed a little harder. So now he's Getting back into this. And you, I almost want to say it in a British accent as Peppa Pig has been on in our house. Are you a king then? Okay. And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I'm a king, but remember what my kingdom's like. Okay. Remember where my kingdom's going to be. It's not directly a threat to you right now. All right. And then Jesus goes into... For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world. And if you just stop there, you'd be like, oh, to be a king? No, Jesus goes on to say, no, so that I should bear witness to the truth. That's Jesus' kingdom. Truth, bearing witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, this is why I've come for this cause. Now it's interesting in the gospels, there's a lot of different causes why Jesus came into the world. Matthew 5, 17. Don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law for this cause. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets or Matthew 20, 28. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So why did Jesus come? To serve. Even though he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth, 
He totally had every right to come and just have everyone serve him. And he could sit in a hammock and they could do the palm frond thing and drop grapes in his mouth. And like, ah, this is the life, you know. No, he didn't come to be served, but to serve others. And in that serving, he would lay his life down as a ransom price for the world. In Luke 4, 43, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose, I have been sent. So what purpose did Jesus come into the world? To preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. In Luke 19, 10, the son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost. So why did Jesus come into this world? To seek and save every single one of us in this room. Because every single one of us, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was, I mean, not me. You guys know I'm pretty perfect. But all you guys, you know. I was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. For this reason, I've come into the world, Jesus says in another place, to seek and to save the lost. That's you, friend. And that's your best friend, the lost, the blind. And that's your coworkers. And that's your governors. And that's your police force. And that's your paramedics. That's our first responders. That's our, our troops. That's our heroes. That's, that's the ho- hopeless and the homeless and the helpless. Lost, blind, wretch. Jesus came to seek and save every one of us. John three seventeen, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. For this purpose, I've come into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And John 10, 10, the last one, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come. Jesus says in the good shepherd passage that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So why did Jesus come for this purpose? I have come that they may have life and life abundantly. And then here in the Pontius Pilate passage, the Pontius Pilate passage, sorry, front row. Why does Jesus say for which purpose he has come, been born into the world, taken on flesh, And dwell among his own creation. For what purpose has he come? To bear witness to the truth. And in this sense, truth is known more than in an intellectual sense. I mean, don't you desire truth these days, even in an intellectual sense? I mean, I just feel like all the research that we're all doing about how to live life in these especially awful times, you're like, I've got resources and then the other side's like, well, so do I, and my resources are better than yours. No, mine are better than yours. And it's like, I don't even know how to converse, have a conversation anymore. But the beautiful thing is we can all just say, let's just all push all that aside and just come to Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit bears witness of the truth and will help us know who Jesus is and what in the world was he saying. That's our common ground right there. So we can come before Jesus and we can hear him say, for this reason, I've come into this world. And Pontius Pilate in the next verse is going to say, what is truth? I've been reading the blogs. I'm a Roman. We've tried to think that one through. So we just decided all the gods work. doesn't work as good as you'd think. Okay. And so it's more than in an intellectual sense. 
more than in an intellectual sense. LMNP. It's nothing less than the self-disclosure through the Son of God of who God is. That's why Jesus has come into this world. Okay, first, we're just going to finish our chapter. So Pilate says to him, and this moves on to the next scene. In this very verse, Jesus is going to go back out to the Jews, okay? So Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? What is truth? Is Jesus, or rather, is Pilate a seeker here or a cynic? I often wonder that. Is Pilate a seeker here or a cynic? If he was a seeker, he may have pulled up a chair. I've really been wondering, what is truth? I mean, seems like you might know. You got anything? What? You know? And Jesus would have had a nice little dialogue about truth there. But he doesn't. Jesus pretty, uh, Pilate pretty much moves right on. And it was Alistair Begg, who's a great evangelist preacher and really encourages evangelism, who said, I think we make a great mistake in our evangelism by thinking that all people care about is truth. Because I think there's a great way in apologetics to defend the truth of the Bible and the scripture and the claims of Jesus and creation and all of these things. But the world doesn't want to know truth. I mean, you've tried witnessing to people with truth as your sword, right? They want to know about relevance. They want to know about how is this relevant to me and my life and my situation and primarily how I can keep living my life my way. And the gospel is just not all that relevant to that for them because the gospel says, well, you're going to have to repent of your way. You're going to have to repent of being your own God and you're going to need to come back to Jesus. Okay, and then you'll see how really relevant Jesus is for our life, right? Its relevance, however, does not make the gospel true. Its truthfulness and trustworthiness is what makes it relevant, okay? So Pontius Pilate didn't really care about truth at the moment because it wasn't relevant to his life. If he would have just bowed his knee to its trustworthiness, he would have found all the relevance for his life that he needed. And so verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? In Matthew 27, 18, it says that Pilate knew that the Jews had handed Jesus over because of envy and jealousy. So Pilate is seeing right through their little charade He knows, and we saw this back in, I think it's John 13, right after Lazarus was risen from the dead, or 12, um, that the Jews were afraid that Jesus was going to take their power away from him, the Jewish leaders. And so Pilate knows, like, you guys are only doing this because you're just jealous of the crowds that Jesus has been getting. And then he goes on to say in Matthew 27, 19, so while he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife, Pilate's wife, sent to him, saying, have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. This is amazing stuff, right? I mean, she's just over in her little first lady's mansion or whatever it is that she's living in. She's tossing and turning. Her bed is swimming because she is having dreams like like, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in um, 
Daniel chapter 2, you know, about that image. She's having dreams about Jesus. She's tossing and turning. She's lying awake. And she comes and says, just let the guy go. And sadly, Pontius Pilate doesn't heed uh, the voice of his wife. And so he kind of tries in his dilemma to say, you know, hey, um, you have a custom. I should release someone. How about I just release this guy to you and just, you know, and they won't have it. They all cried out saying, not this man, Jesus, but we want Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. If I'm correct, I think he was also a murderer. Barabbas, you know what that name means? Bar Abba or Bar Abbas, son of the father. And this is a picture of that great exchange that I was talking about, where they took the son of God, the son of the father, and in this moment, they exchanged him and they de-godded him in their hearts. And they said, no, 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 we want that guy. We want that son of man. We want that son of the father. Bring Barabbas out to us, a thief and a murderer. We'll take him instead of the righteous one, the just one. That's what we've done, every one of us, in our own heart. When Romans chapter 1 says that we exchange the truth of God for a lie, we exchange the son of God for the world and for sin. And it's also what the Bible says was done in that great exchange where the son of God, the just was given for us, the unjust. So we're going to have the worship team come up and we're going to end with that today. Matthew tells us that they asked for Barabbas so that they could destroy Jesus is the word. They wanted to destroy Jesus. That was my fault. My big hug session that I had up here. And so if you'll just set your things aside, we'll just move towards prayer. Can we throw that verse again? 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let's ponder that for a moment. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Lord, as we come just closing out a time in your word, we're seeing how you, as Peter tells us, suffered and went on trial and you opened not your mouth in the sense that you, you didn't revile back, you didn't accuse everyone else around you, You didn't try to establish your own righteousness. You answered a couple simple questions. But you've given us an example to follow in all of our suffering. And of all of our mistreatment. That we don't try to just create a big defense for ourselves. But as Peter says, we trust ourselves to you who judge righteously. Thank you, Jesus, for being such an example. And will you join me in a a moment of prayer as we pray in just a heartfelt thank you to the Lord for this great exchange. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming sin for us and taking on yourself the sins of the world. That anyone who would believe in you would not perish, but have everlasting life. That anyone who believed in you 
would be made righteous as you are righteous. We thank you, Lord, for enduring this trial. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, enduring the cross as you endured the scourgings. Thank you for doing that great act of love for us. And as one who stands here before a church, just deeply aware of my own sin and hypocrisy and just outbursts of anger and just my heart sometimes to people and just so aware of my deep need for a savior to save me. Thank you, Lord, for taking my place, taking the wrath of God upon yourself for me. And if you're here in this room and you feel that for yourself, even now the Lord has just been laying on your heart just the sins that you've committed against him, the hypocrisy of your own life and the rebellion and the disobedience and the compromise that has marked your life. As the psalmist says, O Lord, if you were to keep an account of sin, who could stand? but there's forgiveness with you, the psalm says. And if you were to take that list of your sins, you cannot stand before God in his righteous judgment. But there's forgiveness in Jesus. And right now where you're at, I invite you, in the quiet place of your heart and in your mind, just take a moment and confess your sins to Jesus. Confess your status as a sinner. Confess your rebellion, your wickedness of thought, your covetousness, your lying, your cheating, your lust, your adultery. Confess those things before the Lord. Acknowledge them before Him that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And in that place of your heart today, receive from him his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy that washes away all of your sins and makes you just as if you'd never sinned before. And receive today from Jesus his lordship. He would be the master of your life. And as we've studied today, that he is a king that he would be the king of your heart. We thank you, Lord, today for bearing witness of your truth in our midst. And we bow the knee to your truth in this place. If you've just had that heart moment with Jesus today, I want to encourage you to believe that your sins are forgiven and to move forward on his plan for you, to being a follower of Jesus to being a part of a local church, to being a disciple that sits at the feet of the teacher Jesus and to learn how to live for him in these days. He's inviting you to relationship with him. 